The following program is part one of two parts, each 90 minutes long. There is support material available at this website, including quizzes, handouts, and lecture outlines for all presentations. Consult the UCTV programming guide for the date and time part two and other lectures in the series will be shown. Master gardeners are often asked, what's wrong with my plant? But answering that question is not often easy. Understanding the diseases of plants is one of the most important and often perplexing aspects of horticulture. Dr. Bob Robbie has devoted his life to understanding plant diseases. From his first garden at age 13 and throughout his teaching and research career, he's always shared what he knows. He received his undergraduate and graduate degrees from the University of Wisconsin. He first came to the University of California in 1952. He taught introductory plant pathology for 37 years and a popular urban garden ecosystems class for 22. He's done extensive research. He also enjoys writing for Pacific Horticulture, the Ortho Problem Solver, and Botanic Garden Newsletters. Dr. Robbie is a favorite teacher in the Master Gardener training. For 15 years, he's helped UC Farm Advisors train their volunteers with a thorough and entertaining plant pathology class. He's retired now, and we wanted to create this video so that future Master Gardeners could enjoy his vast slide collection and his knowledge of plant pathology. Disease in plants, of course, is an injurious disturbance in the form and or the function resulting from a continuous irritation. Before we can have disease, we have to have some things present. First of all, we have to have a plant, of course, but not only a plant, we have to have a plant that is susceptible to any given problem. And so we have a special term for that. We call that a suscept. We also have to have an environment which is favorable for any given disease to develop. Many times we have an interaction between the plant and, in, and an environment, and the environment is not favorable for the growth of the plant, and so we have a disease result from an interaction between the plant and an unfavorable environment. Such diseases we call non-infectious diseases. They're non-infectious because there's nothing that can spread from one plant to another. And there are a lot of those, and of course you're all familiar with them. If we just mention one right off to start, nutritional diseases are non-infectious diseases. Then we have lots of diseases where there are causal organisms. And the causal organisms <clears throat> can vary from one type to another. We can have bacteria, we can have phytoplasmas, and we'll talk about those in a minute. We'll, we can have fungi, we can have viruses, we can have nematodes, we can even have some problems with insects because they fit our definition of disease and we'll talk about that when we get there. No problem whatsoever. Such diseases of course are called infectious diseases because something can move from one plant to another and in that way we can have 
a new disease developing in another area or in another part of the field or in another part of your garden, wherever. In a disease situation that we call infectious, we have three factors, the suscept, the environment, and the disease-producing agent. You can call it a disease-producing agent. We frequently speak of disease-producing agents, and these are living things, as being pathogens. We have an interaction between these three things, and the most critical thing to remember about this is that no single factor is more important than the other. In other words, you frequently hear it said that if there's a disease-producing agent in the area, you're going to have disease. You're not going to have disease unless you have that disease-producing agent there in the present of, presence of a susceptible plant and in an environment which is favorable for disease to, de to develop. And all of three of these are equally important. No one is more important than the other. When we talk about these diseases, each one of these diseases, first of all, we're going to take the non-infectious diseases and we're going to talk about those in each group. Uh, then we will talk about those diseases which result from infection by bacteria, and then we'll go into the ones with fungi all the way through. So in each group of diseases that we're going to talk about, we will divide them up as to what is the causal agent or what is the cause. The way I've divided the diseases up today is based upon symptoms. Symptoms are, di are defined as visible, visible manifestations of disease as shown by the plant. In other words, if you go out and look at a plant and it has a big spot in the middle of it, that's the plant responding and that is a symptom. We mainly diagnose plant diseases by symptoms. But we also sometimes are able to diagnose plant diseases by looking at the causal agent itself. Powdery mildews, for example. You would diagnose that disease by seeing the causal agent. That's known as a sign. And you will find that your outline is divided up into two sections, symptoms and signs. We will take different types of symptoms and discuss them in a group because that's the way you're going to look at them. You're going to see uh, symptoms that are somewhat similar. And so we've divided this up into a, a group of different symptoms. And the first symptoms we're going to talk about are those where there is a killing of tissues. And of course, plant pathologists aren't happy with a little tiny, a big, big word like killing of tissues. They have to have something complex. So they call this necrosis. Necrosis is killing of tissues. And we're going to start with very small portions of the plant, and then we're gradually going to kill more portions of the plant, and gradually we're going to kill whole plants. And when we get through with the killing of plants, then we'll start with another symptom. And then we will go through each of these symptoms. And in each group, we're going to take, first of all, the non-infectious diseases that are involved in that. Then we're going to take those that result from bacteria, phytoplasmas, fungi, viruses, nematodes, and so forth. So you're going to go through a lot of these different causal agents each time we have a different set of symptoms. But the reason we do it this way is because there are a lot of things that look alike, and yet they're completely different when you find out what the, the real cause is.
And so this is why we're doing it on the basis of symptoms. Most plant pathologists classify plant diseases as to the type of causal agent. We're going to do that, but we're going to do it within a symptom expression group rather than as the whole cause, okay? With that, I think we should, be, should start looking at the slides. The first symptoms that we're going to look at, you remember, are necrosis. We're going to talk about necrosis. What does necrosis mean? Killing of tissues. Oh, you're good. Uh, we're going to start with necrosis in small areas. And so the first one we want to look at is a problem that we see very, very commonly, a killing of the tissues around the margin of the leaf. This occurs first on the older leaves on the plants, and this is due to salt damage. Excess salts accumulate in plants. They accumulate on the older leaves because they've been on the plant longer. They accumulate at the, around the margins because the salts accumulate at the ends of the veins. Eventually, they reach a concentration where they're high enough so that they kill the plant, the plant tissue. And if you see that, you can almost be certain that you have salt damage. Salt damage is very, very characteristic. Usually dark brown, uh, not always, but usually. And if you see that, you know you have salt damage. Sometimes it doesn't go all the way around a leaf, but far enough so that you can be suspicious. So if you see a leaf that doesn't go all the way around, don't say, well, we have to eliminate salt damage, you see. You say, well, that looks pretty much like salt damage, and then you look at other leaves on the plant. In diagnosing your problems, you probably never want to look only at a single leaf. I realize that sometimes people are only going to bring you a single leaf, and we have this problem too. But if you can look at more than one, that will help. This is a philodendron, and the reason that I put it in is notice that there's a yellow area between the dead area and the green area. You notice the other slides that I showed you, there was no yellow area. So the yellow is a variable characteristic, and you want to be sure that you don't say, well, there's yellow there, it can't be salt damage. If there's yellow there, it can be salt damage. It's just that it varies from one plant to another. Here's a plant that perhaps you know if you're a house plant grower. This is Maranta, the prayer plant. Have you ever seen that without any salt damage? No, it's, it's very, very sensitive. One of the most sensitive plants we have. And if you grow that plant, you probably will end up with salt damage because uh, it's so sensitive. Here's another plant that has salt damage all the time. Spider plant. Did you ever grow a spider plant that didn't have dead tips? If you did, you're pretty good because uh, it's very, very sensitive to salts. Now, where do the salts come from? Well, they could be in the soil to begin with, but probably not. They could be in the water that you're using to irrigate, and this is a possibility. And it could be from fertilizer, improper use of fertilizer. Also, it can be just from not leaching the plants correctly. Now, salt damage is much more common in plants that are grown in containers and it is in open ground. Don't say I said it doesn't occur in open ground. It can, but it's much more common in plants that are in containers, and it's because we do a nasty job of growing plants in containers. We, we do everything wrong, and no wonder those poor plants suffer. Some of them suffer even more than others because they're so sensitive that they will always have that problem unless you do everything just exactly right. One of the interesting things that, that we're learning and we didn't know about until just within the last several years ago, last several years, 
some water districts, because the water that's going through the pipes is acidic, and because acidic water eats on metal pipes, they put sodium hydroxide in the water in order to pull it up so it's above neutral. And <coughs> East Bay <coughs> Water District, I was told this just recently, I was in Half Moon Bay and I was told that the water district in Half Moon Bay, they put enough sodium hydroxide in the water so that the pH of the water is 8.1. Well, sodium, unfortunately, is very toxic to plants. Even more unfortunately, plants don't use sodium at all. They have no use for sodium whatsoever, and so it accumulates, and so you can get salt damage very easily. So you have to be careful about how you grow your plants, and the best way of, of taking care of it, of course, is to grow them with all the tender, loving neglect you can give them, okay? Uh, this salt damage I put in just because uh, we know what it is. This happens to be boron. Uh, we tested the leaves. They were high in boron. We tested the soil. It was high in boron. But the reason I put it in is it looks just like any salt damage, but any salt in excess can cause this trouble, and that's what we have to worry about. I told you that it's usually only on the older leaves, but once in a while you may see it on all the leaves of a plant. This is a rare situation, but this poor little rhododendron has salt damage on every single leaf. Too much fertilizer. How do we correct it? Well, we correct it by leaching. As I said, we have more problems with this growing in, in plants in containers than we do in open ground. So if you're going to insist on growing, plant, growing plants in containers, you might as well do it correctly. And that is to be sure you always water the plants from the top. Put the pot in a saucer. Put three little blocks of wood underneath the pot so that it raises it off the saucer so the water can drain out. And then occasionally put enough water in the pot so that the water drains through. Never let the plant sit in that water that drains through because that's where the extra salts are. And if some of that water evaporates, that's going to increase the salt content in that water. And if the soil goes dry, that's going to go back up into the pot and it's going to aggravate the conditions. Now, I know none of you ever let your plants sit in the water that drains through, but I talked to a gardening group a couple of weeks ago and one little lady admitted that she did that. But she also came and told me that she wasn't going to do it anymore. So, be sure that you get rid of that water. Now, the reason I have a turkey baster there is because I talk to lots of gardening groups with sweet little old ladies, and they tell me they cannot lift a heavy pot. So, buy a turkey baster. Don't pay more than 69 cents for one on sale. And put it right by your plants and use it for sucking up that water. You don't have to lift the pots out at all. Very simple, easy way of doing now, I told you occasionally you put enough water on to run water through the pot. Or you're going to say, well, what do you mean by occasionally? Okay, let's talk about that. With most plants, which are not extremely salt sensitive, I would say once every two or three weeks is adequate. If you have a salt sensitive plant, such as Maranta or any of the ferns, particularly bird nest fern, Asplenium, or if you have spider plants, Every time you water, you should run the water through. If you do that, you'll be surprised. You can even grow spider plants without any dead tips. But you have to do it every time. I have a friend.
friend who lives in Los Angeles, she lived next door to me when we were in high school. She couldn't understand why in the world anybody would be stupid enough to carry seed catalogs around in his notebook all the time. Eventually, she became very, very intelligent in her old age. She became interested in plants, and she understood exactly why I carried seed catalogs around in my, my notebook all the time. And she has a whole, she has a small apartment, and the whole wall, and the whole window area is filled with plants. And she does a beautiful job. I didn't tell her what a beautiful job. I didn't see any salt damage. But I asked her what she did to her plants. She said every week on Saturday, I put my plants in the bathtub, and I turn the, the shower nozzle on, and she said I give them a good soaking. And she does a beautiful job, and that's all it takes. Good leaching, and that's what she was doing. Okay, another disease where we have necrosis is sunburn. Sunburn appears as a killing of the tissues between the veins. Now, sometimes you will see that the veins, that, that the dead tissue is close enough in areas so that they will coalesce, so it will cross some veins. But usually, sunburn appears between the veins. Sunburn is very, very common, and I used to think that it was due principally to excess sunlight. After looking at plants for a little while, I've decided that the main cause of sunburn is lack of water in the plants. If a plant goes dry, it will sunburn. If a plant has adequate water, it will not sunburn. Now, there are exceptions, and we will talk about some of these exceptions, but in general, that's the main cause of sunburn. And very obviously, this rhododendron went dry, and it sunburned. One of the early symptoms in sunburn is a color change. There's a, a loss of the green color. We, we call that yellowing. Actually, the leaves don't turn yellow. The leaves are already yellow. It's just that when the green chlorophyll is there, it masks it. If the chlorophyll disappears, then the yellow appears. But we say leaves turn yellow. They don't turn yellow. They already are yellow. Here is ivy. The sunburn between the veins. The sunburned tissues will vary in color from one plant to another. So sometimes they will be bleached. You notice the rhododendron was brown. That doesn't make any difference. It just is that it's very characteristic if it's between the veins. We commonly see sunburn on ivy. Why? We're nasty to ivy. We plant it. We say we can get by without doing anything. We don't water it. We have a real hot sunny spell, and it sunburns. And then we say, oh, we should have watered it. And we go and water it, so the new growth comes, and it covers up all those sunburned leaves. And then pretty soon we forget about that, and we let it go dry again, and then it sunburns. And we just recycle this year in and year out all the time. We have a clinic in, in Berkeley. Man brought these in one day, called me up in advance. He says, I have a brand new disease on tomatoes. He said, this is something I've never seen before. He says, I don't think you've seen it before either. I says, okay, bring it in. He brought it in, and I said, uh, you let your tomatoes go dry, didn't you? He said, how did you know? I said, well, the plants are telling me. I said, that's sunburn. And he said, well, you're right. He said, I did let them go dry. This was a little experiment that I ran just to see what would happen. Some plants have very narrow leaves, which means that they're constructed so that they don't lose much water. This happens to be a dianthus in the carnation family. And so I wondered what would happen if I let those, some of those plants go dry. So out on my driveway, I put two pink plants, pink being not the color but the name of the plant, uh, dianthus, and in one of them I 
put water every day and the other one I let go dry just to see what would happen. Well, interestingly enough, the one that I let go dry, the flower sunburned. The leaves did not. So sometimes you may see this in flowers too. One of the exceptions to plants going dry and sunburning is if there is a lack of chlorophyll in the leaves for any reason. It doesn't make any difference what the problem is. This happens to be a virus in rose. This happens to be from my own garden. By the way, a lot of these things I'm showing you are from my own garden. I have a fantastic disease collection, you see. I don't have to run around the neighborhood and look for disease. They're all right there. Well, this was in my garden. I predicted that this. We had a real scorching hot day. And this beautiful rose virus uh, causes the chlorophyll to disappear. And so I figured that we'd have some problem. And the next day I went out and sure enough, it was sunburned beautifully. Well, you're going to tell me two things. You're going to say, well, let's surround the margins and it sort of looks like salt damage. And it does, but it doesn't go all the way around the margins. And also, this is up on the plant. You can see some leaves down below and there's no burn on those. So this tells you that it's not salt damage. And then you're going to tell me, but you said salt sunburn occurs between the veins. And this isn't between the veins. But sunburn occurs between the veins when there's a lack of water in the plant. And water, the last place to have water in the plant is the vein, you see? So that's going to be the last place to sunburn. So that has nothing to do with this because this has no chlorophyll to protect it and it's not, not even connected with water, okay? Well, here's a beautiful, beautiful sunburn. The side of the leaf on the bottom was getting more sun than the upper portion. So it burned more, but the other portion is beginning to burn because remember I told you one of the early symptoms of sunburn is a color loss. And you see that color loss along there and then you see some of the tissue beginning to die, but on this side a lot of the tissue. Now sometimes the, the tissue is discolored due to the fact that a, an organism, a fungus, will go in and will work on that dead tissue. And you can see that beginning to happen up here in some of these spots. Another problem that can cause color loss in plants is a nutritional deficiency. This happens to be iron deficiency. Both of these rhododendron leaves are showing iron deficiency, but the one on the right is showing a lot more, and you see it's beginning to sunburn as a result of not having enough chlorophyll in the leaves. Do you grow a kuba down here at all, gold dust plant? Well, the one that has those great big yellow blotches, and by the way, that's a natural variegation. That is not due to disease or any other problem. It's just natural. That big yellow area frequently turns black. And the reason that it turns black is sunburn. And that plant is just saying that it's getting too much sunlight. It needs to be planted in more shade so that you don't have uh, such a problem with it. Fruits also can be sunburned. And again, it has nothing to do with water in the plant may have something to do with good foliage cover. Tomatoes, if they do not have good foliage cover, the fruits that are exposed, the shoulders, will sunburn. And that tissue will never ripen. It will stay that color. It will never get soft. It will be hard. Uh, there's nothing wrong with it. You can eat those tissues if you want. Um, they're sort of crunchy, uh, but uh, they, don't, they don't taste badly. And uh, if you want, you can use those. Uh, if you cook those tissues, they still will stay crunchy. So you can use sunburned tissues, so you just have to learn to get used to the crunch, that's all. 
if you have this happening in your tomatoes, check to see what's wrong. Maybe you have a, a disease problem that's preventing the foliage from forming the way it should. Maybe the foliage isn't a, a growing out where it should cover the fruits the way it should. Lots of problems, but it has to do with the fact that the fruits are exposed too much. Same thing happens with peppers. Peppers sunburn very, very easily if they get too much sunlight. Those of you who are around walnut trees know that walnuts frequently will be sunburned on one side. You get this nice elliptical um, brown area on the upper portion of the fruits that's exposed, and that's just sunburn, and it means that, again, there's not enough foliage on those trees to cover the fruits. Apples even will sunburn. I even had it happen in my own garden this year. Uh, that was unusual, and I, I, I don't know why, uh, what, what, what caused it, but I'm not going to worry about it too much. Another disease where we have necrosis is if the plant picks up something from the soil, which is very toxic. If it does that, it kills the tissues right down the veins, and you can see this, the tissues right down the veins are killed. The chances of finding out what killed that tissue are very small. Uh, frequently, um, when people bring me something like that, and the woman that brought this to me uh, said that she hadn't done anything different to her little Japanese maple. And so I said, well, do you get along with your neighbors? And you'd be surprised. Neighbors sometimes do something if a tree is in the way and they don't like it. She said, no, we get along fine with our neighbors. But she said, we live near the university and anything's apt to happen there. Well, I would agree with that, too. I suggested that because this was a deciduous tree, that she irrigate it as much as possible without causing too much problem, and then wait till the following year and see if it leafed out again all right, and then to come and tell me. And she said she would do all those things, but she never came and told me, so I don't know if this tree made it or not. Here's a fiddly fig uh, came in from one of the libraries on the campus. A young lady who was in charge of the plants there was very, very upset. This was a great big plant, and practically all the leaves on the plant had that, those dead areas. And I said, what in the world did you do to that plant? And she said, nothing differently. And I said, are you sure? And she said, yes. And I said, well, we better explore this. I said, uh, did you have a party in your library? And she said, oh, yes. And I said, was the party about a week before this symptom appeared? And she said, oh, yes. And I said, uh, did you serve alcoholic beverages at your party? And she said, yes. And I said, have you figured out what happened to your plant? And she said, yes. <laughs> Somebody didn't like their drink and they poured it in the pot. And alcohol is extremely water soluble. It was picked up and carried right out to the ends of the veins and killed virtually all the veins on that plant. If you look at the underside, it killed the, the tissues even further than it did on the upper side. Nothing you can do. She wanted, she wanted me to write her a formula to get that plant to recover. Those tissues are dead. You can't bring them back. The question is, would it grow new leaves? It would if you cut the plant off. Or if you cut all the leaves off uh, and left just a couple at the top to manufacture food. It probably would sprout new leaves, but it might take a long time. Another place where we have necrosis is if a plant goes dry and part of the tissues go beyond the wilting point. If tissues go beyond the wilting point, they die. They will not come back, even though the plant may get water again. 
But when they die for this reason, they have a very, very characteristic symptom. And that is the tissues die, but they retain a dull green color. Those tissues are dead, they're brittle, you can crumble them in your fingers. And if you see this, you know that that plant went dry. Very characteristic, very diagnostic. Here it is in a hydrangea plant. I gave this plant to a friend one day I went by and it was sitting on the front porch. And I said, you let your hydrangea go dry. She said, oh no. And I said, oh yes. And she said, well, oh, maybe a little bit. I said, oh no, a big bit. She said, I, I don't think so. I said, I know, I don't think so either. I know so, you see. Nothing looks like that. You see, that plant went dry. And it even, look at how the, the area around the veins tends to be green farther than, than the area between the veins. It's just telling you that, that water was involved. I could tell you about lots of arguments about people. They don't want to believe this. And this is one of the things that you're going to have to recognize when you do your Master Gardener program. People are never going to tell you what they did. And if you suspect something wrong that's very simple, they're not going to believe that either. You're going to have to become a diplomat and explain all these things very, very gradually because they don't want to believe that they could in any way be responsible for what's going on. It has to be a magic new disease that's coming in and, and they want you to wave a magic wand and get rid of it, you see. Well, here's a beet plant. In my garden, I let that plant grow dry, go dry and it did what, it, what it's supposed to do. It turned brown around the margins, retained that dull green color. Now sometimes they, they may turn tannish or brownish, but if you see that dull green color scattered through there, that means that it went dry. Sometimes when you see this in your lawn, you uh, are suspicious of many, many things. Uh, I used to take my daughter's dog for a walk. No, that's not dog damage. I used to take my daughter's dog for a walk. And this was past the school. And one day the man that was in charge of all this said, what's wrong with my lawn? And I said, well, I said, are you watering it? He said, oh, yeah, three times a week. And I said, how long? He said, oh, maybe a couple hours. Well, I said, you're doing it pretty correctly. I said, have you ever uh, checked it while the sprinkler's on? Oh, yeah. I said, are you sure? Well, I think so. I said, go turn the sprinkler on. And he did. The sprinkler hit everything except for that brown spot. But you see those little tiny green spatches out there? Every once in a while, a water piece of some water would squirt out there and hit those. I said, why don't you fix your sprinkler heads? He did. Within three weeks, that lawn was all green again. Just lack of water. Another time we have lack of water is with fairy ring. You all familiar with fairy ring and turf? Fairy ring results, it's a nice big circular uh, area where the grass turns sometimes tannish or brownish and the fairy ring eventually expands and then the grass goes back green again so you just end up with this ring wherever the fungus is active. There are papers that say that this fungus is producing a material that kills the grass, but it doesn't kill the grass because as soon as the fungus in the soil has used up all the nutrients and it's just a fungus that's living on the organic matter, and as soon as it's used up all that, then it moves on into the area where it hasn't been before. And then the grass, as soon as it moves on, the grass can become wet again. The grass can begin growing again. And the reason for it is, is because when the fungus is there in the soil, it dries the soil out so much that the grass can't get any water. You see, we dug out a plug in front of that ring of fungus 
and see how nice and dark the soil is with moisture. We dug it out right in the ring where the fungus was working, and you can see that that soil is just bone dry. And the reason for it is, is because that fungus is impervious to water. And when the water comes on, it hits it and it runs off to the side, and so nothing can happen. Even more interesting is the fact that you can see the grass beginning to grow right behind that ring as the fungus is no longer active, but notice that that ring is darker green. And the reason it's darker green is because the fungus has broken down some of the organic material and has released some nutrients to the soil, and so we have extra growth coming right behind that growth. All this whole thing is due to is lack of water. We can have the same thing if you allow too much thatch to build up in your turf. You see that the plug at the top has a lot of thatch. And notice that the soil underneath it is bone dry. Taken right next to it where the, the grass was doing very well, notice that there was not very much thatch and notice that the soil is moist. It's just a matter of moisture, that's all. Uneven water. Uneven water can cause problems, uh, particularly in tomatoes. Have you all seen blossom end rot in your tomatoes? Nobody seen blossom end rot? Okay. It's very, very common. Blossom end rot results from uneven watering during the time when the plant is beginning to produce tomatoes in the early part of the growing season. If you give the plants an even water, don't let them go dry, just keep them nice and moist, you won't have this problem. Now, we've been saying this for years, but plant physiologists aren't happy with that answer. And they've studied it, and they've found out that actually the thing that's a basic cause of blossom end rot is lack of calcium in the fruit. It's not getting enough calcium. Well, our soils are not deficient in calcium, so that shouldn't make any difference, except if we don't have enough water in the plant to carry the calcium into the fruit, then we're going to have blossom end rot. So it's an interaction between lack of water at certain parts of the growing stage of the plant and calcium not getting in the fruit. If you keep that water supply going, you won't have blossom end rot. No problem at all. We had a graduate student working on a problem on tomatoes. He had plants that were almost the top of the greenhouse, great big huge plants, loaded with tomatoes, and every single fruit on those plants had blossom end rot. And the reason for it is, is that in our greenhouses, plants get watered twice a day, whether they need it or not. Doesn't make any difference. And they just weren't getting enough water between those two irrigations. And so they, when I needed blossom end rot, all I had to do was go down to that green, and there was an abundance. And there are some of the ones right from his, his plant. Uh, it started very early because they, there was so much water stress on the plants. Now, one other interesting thing about this, and that is that as we go towards the end of the growing season, you won't see this. Hardly any blossom rot at all, blossom end rot occurring. And uh, even if you let the plants go dry, well, probably the reason for it is, is that the plants aren't demanding as much calcium in their growth because calcium is necessary for the new growth. And you see, if the plants aren't growing much anymore, there's probably still enough calcium available, and so there's no problem. So you won't see this late in the growing season. Uneven watering, this is a lily stem. Can you see that, how wide open it's split? Um, I, I'm, an, uh, I'm a, a hand waterer. I have a sandy soil, which is unusual, and I tend to be a low-level waterer, and yet I give the plants enough to keep them alive. But very obviously, somebody stopped and talked to me while I was watering that lily plant, 
and lo and behold, I put too much water on. The stem took it up. The outside of the stem can expand. The inside can, and it's can, and it split right open. Uh, very interesting, but it happens lots of times. You ever have this happen on tomatoes? You see, once the tomato fruit is set, it can only, the ex external portion can no longer expand. The internal parts can. And so if you give that plant a lot of water when it's already set, this, the, the outer portion is going to split. Same thing true with cherries. It virtually always rains during the time when we have uh, cherries on. I read something interesting recently. They used to think this was due to water picked up from the soil, but now they, they, they say it can even be water that lands on the fruit from the rain. But they find that if they sprinkle the plants with a calcium salt, uh, prior to the rain that they can reduce the splitting clear down to about one-third of what it would if they didn't do that. So they're working on this to control it. Uh, vegetative parts of the plant, of course, can do it. And I showed you the lily stem here are carrots that uh, were already set, ready to go, and somebody gave it a bunch of water and they split wide open. Here's a biological control. If you plant your carrots close enough together, one will wrap around the other one and it will prevent it from splitting quite as bad. <laughs> of course, I'm just kidding. So much for non-infectious diseases where there's necrosis. Now we're going to start talking about some diseases where there are causal organisms. If we stop and think a little bit, about disease-producing organisms that affect the foliage of plants, we need to realize that in this area of the country, we don't have many disease-producing organisms that affect the foliage. Now, don't say we don't have any, we, but we don't have many. And the reason for it is that most of these disease-producing organisms have to have condensed moisture for a period of 6, 8, 10, 12 hours for, in order for infection to take place. And during our dry summers, unless we overhead sprinkle, we don't have that situation, so we don't have many disease-producing organisms that affect the foliage. But we have, we have a few. But <clears throat> my mother lived in the Midwest, and I used to go back and visit her, and I wandered around the neighbor's gardens, and I was just fascinated with all the diseases I could find because they have rain every week or every two weeks back there and just you, you don't have any problem finding diseases at all. Here you have, might have to look a little bit. Bacteria are very, very small organisms, uh, one-celled organisms that you can hardly see with a light microscope. You can just barely see them. They are not very common causal agents in plant disease. There may be only 400, 500 of them that can cause plant disease. Uh, several reasons for this, but the main one is, at least in this area, is that they are high temperature organisms. They like high temperatures. And we have high temperatures, but it's during our dry period, so there's no problem. Now, there is a bacterium that goes to ivy and causes this leaf spot. And we only find this where people overhead sprinkle their ivy in the summertime. It's too cold in the wintertime when we have our rain, so there's no problem. But if you overhead sprinkle in the summertime, you'll have it. Bacterial leaf spots tend to be sort of angular. The bacteria are not capable of crossing main veins, and so you will see that they tend to be angular. 
Uh, this is a bacterium on lavender. And notice again, they're round out in the middle, but when they come up against a vein, notice that they stop. Stop by veins. They do not cross the main veins. Here's a beautiful one on tomato. This is a, a problem that we do see occasionally because when people are producing tomatoes in their nurseries early in the season, sometimes they overhead sprinkle. And so we do see this occasionally. Again, notice that the spots are round out on the leaf, but when they come up against a vein, they are stopped and they become angular. This same bacterium also infects the fruits of tomatoes, and notice those spots are nice and round. How come? No veins on the fruits, you see, so we're going to get round spots. Here's a bacterial disease of walnuts. can be a serious problem. Uh, even on the fruits here, they tend to be somewhat angular, which is sort of interesting. A disease that you may see on acorns in this area is one in which we find an insect lays her eggs in the acorns, and the top row you can see little holes, and that's where she laid her eggs. But in the bottom ones, you can see that the acorns are beginning to turn brown, being killed by the bacteria. And unfortunately, when this happens, they give off an exudate that's very sticky, and the disease is called drippy nut. And if you have a patio or a car or underneath these, you may be a very upset with your, your oak trees, and you may want to do something about trying to prevent the fruits from being formed so that you don't have this problem. Moving on to leaf-infecting fungi. We have lots of leaf-infecting fungi here. Again, depending upon what type of plant you have, probably one of the more serious ones that you will run into is sycamore anthracnose. Sycamore anthracnose is common in this area. The fungus invades the tissues, and unlike most disease-producing organisms, it chooses the veins and moves right down the veins. And so if you see tissue being killed right down the veins on sycamore, you know that you have the sycamore anthracnose fungus. The sycamore anthracnose fungus, if it kills enough tissue down the vein, causes the abscission layer of that leaf to form, and so that leaf will drop. And so we have lots of leaf drop associated with sycamore anthracnose. Now, sycamore anthracnose is dependent upon rain. If we have late rains after the leaves come out in the spring of the year, we're almost bound to have sycamore anthracnose. And last year we had lots of late rains and I never saw so much sycamore anthracnose. It really was very, very intense last year. Lots of leaf drop clear into the fall as a result of this fungus. Now, once the leaves are infected and if they fall, they're no longer a problem. Uh, this fungus produces its spores in a sticky mucilaginous material, which means that it has to be water dispersed. It means that there's no way for water raindrop to hit an old leaf on the ground and splash the spores clear up into a sycamore tree. So don't worry about it, regardless of what you read. Uh, if you want to, you can rake those leaves up and put them in your compost pile. There's no problem with that. It's just very good. And I tell people if they have lots of sycamore anthracnose, be glad you can have lots of compost this year, you see. 
The problem with this particular fungus is, is that it, in addition to infecting the leaves, it also infects the twigs. And if it infects the twigs, then it will carry over from one year to the next in those twigs. If we have any late rains, after the new leaves come out, then the fungus is going to be splashed from those twigs onto the new leaves. If we have additional rains after that, then the fungus is going to be splashed from those new leaves onto the newer leaves. And this is what happened last year. We, we just kept infecting leaves clear up into uh, May. Now, if your sycamore tree were small enough, you could control this by pruning out those branches. But most sycamore trees are too big to get up and prune the previous season's growth from all of the branches. And so we just have to learn to live with this. I mean, this is a, there's no fungicide that gives control for it, uh, regardless of what you read. And uh, you're not going to go and prune all those branches. So just learn to live with it. Except the fact that you're going to... I've never seen sycamore anthracnose kill a tree. I've never seen it even come close to killing a tree. So you learn to live with it. And as I say, maybe when they named the tree, they named it correctly because it's sycamore than other trees. <laughs> we have a similar fungus that goes to Modesto ash. Modesto ash, it does a similar thing. Kills the leaves also invades the twigs it carries over from one year to the next in the twigs but the problem with this particular one and i'll talk about this a little bit later is that i've seen this fungus defoliate modesto ash trees to the point where some big branches have died they haven't died from infection directly from infection but they've died from lack of nutrients supplied by the leaves and so this can be just a good reason for not growing that plant okay you don't have prejudices about plants, but I do. And I've already told you two, uh, sycamore and modesto ash. Evergreen elms also are infected by an anthracnose, a different one. These are all different fungi. And this one <clears throat> causes black spots on the leaves, black spots on the stems. Uh, we're not worried about the carrying over on the stems in this plant because the leaves are on all year long. It's an evergreen plant, and so during the winter months, the fungus spreads considerably. So you may want to prune this, or you may decide that you don't want to grow um, evergreen elm, or if you do, you may want to grow the Drake cultivar. Uh, by the way, there is a sycamore cultivar that is resistant to this fungus if you want to grow it, if you insist on growing sycamores, and it's called blood good. Bloodgood cultivar is resistant to it. The Drake cultivar is resistant in elms. We have some interesting leaf spots, I think, that are very, very beautiful. This is a, a fungus that you find on Raphiolopus. It's called Endomosporium leaf spot. A very beautiful little fungus. The spores look like little tiny insects. That's where it gets its name. This fungus goes to a number of members of the palm tribe of the rose family. Here it is on evergreen pear. You perhaps have seen it on evergreen pear. It causes a lot of defoliation. Um, really can be a serious problem on evergreen pear. And again, these plants you see are evergreens. They have their leaves on during the wintertime. Fungus produces its spores in a sticky mucilaginous substance. You're going to think that all fungi do, but they don't. We'll talk about some that don't in a minute. But these are spread around during the wintertime and 
splashed all over, and so it causes a lot of defoliation on evergreen pears. Some cultivars are more susceptible than others. Same fungus also goes to pyracantha, also goes to loquat. And so we have lots of plants that are susceptible to that, pretty, that fungus. Pretty difficult to control. This is called heterosporium leaf spot. Fungus infects many, many different forms of iris. Produces these spots, typical of many fungus leaf spots. They are round, uh, they cross the veins, and they sometimes have concentric zones in them. Uh, these are not exactly round, these are elliptical, but it has to do with the fact that we have parallel venation here, and so it causes the spots to be elliptical. This particular fungus, if you have it, can be controlled very easily by good cultural practices. At the end of the growing period in the, oh, maybe July, August, when you dig up your iris to transplant them, you will find that most of the spots are on the older portions of the leaves. Now, the older portions of the leaves, because this is a, <coughs> a monocotyledonous plant, are at the tip of the leaf. They grow from the bottom. So the new growth is down at the bottom. So when you transplant your irises, cut all that upper material off. That'll leave nice green leaves down at the bottom. Transplant your iris. And be sure you get rid of all of those leaves. Do not leave any of them laying behind because this fungus can produce a secondary spore that goes through the winter and will start the whole cycle again the next year. So sanitation, good cultural practices, complete control. No problem whatsoever. The question is, don't compost those, and that's right, because that fungus, unless you use the rapid compost pile, if you use the rapid compost pile, fine. If you don't, don't compost those. Put them in your garbage can and let somebody else worry about them. Here it is up near the tip, and sometimes it'll even kill the tips of the leaves. can be pretty serious on occasion. Here's another heterosporium leaf spot that I said didn't occur in California. Last year I was walking around, and I guess maybe partly because of our rains, I began to see this in many areas. Another heterosporium, it's a different fungus than goes to iris. This one doesn't go to iris. The iris one doesn't go to this. But on nasturtiums, which again tend to perennate and be evergreen in this area, even though they're considered as annuals, you can have this fungus leaf spot on them. Another heterosporium, very common on members of the carnation family, the genus Dianthus. This happens to be Wee Willie, uh, Sweet William, but every once in a while I'll see some nursery have this and they overhead sprinkle and so they splash uh, the fungus all around. Though this fungus produces airborne spores, it doesn't have to be splashed, but because the overhead sprinkle there's much condensed moisture on the leaves and this allows the fungus to become established. A fungus that you may see on your ivy commonly is Phyllosticta, an interesting fungus. Uh, ivy is an evergreen, so during the winter months this is very common. It uh, doesn't damage the plants a lot. In fact, I think it's sort of pretty. But, um, well, you know, after you work with things for a while, you, you get to see beauty in almost anything. So I think diseases are very nice, and uh, I would be the first to... Uh, say that it's probably a prejudice, but nevertheless, it's, that's the way it is. Notice how I, that central spot crosses the main veins, like I told you fungus leaf spots do. Notice that it's uh, concentric zones. Uh, the central tissue is dead. Uh, very characteristic of a fungus leaf spot.
The interesting thing is, notice at the top of that leaf, there are two other spots, but they don't look like the one below. And we used to think this was all one fungus, Phyllosticta. We've been checking it. We find that there are five different fungi that can produce spots in this. Now, I would say don't worry about trying to control it. Uh, in the summertime, the new growth is going to come up. It's going to hide all that winter growth. You're not going to see these beautiful spots. And uh, unless you overhead sprinkle, if you overhead sprinkle, you may have the problem. But <clears throat> next winter, it'll start again, and you just enjoy it as part of the, the winter sequence of things that go on. Phyllosticton calla. Uh, not too serious. Once in a while, we see it. Uh, if I had a calla plant that had a few leaves like that, I'd cut those leaves off and just get rid of them. I wouldn't put them in my compost pile, but I would just get rid of them. Septoria, another fungus that produces its spores, a sticky mucilaginous material. And there are lots of different septorias. This one happens to go to Hebe. Hebe is very susceptible to this particular fungus. And if you want to see lots of septoria on Hebe, Go to the San Francisco Zoo. They've used many, many species all through the zoo. And not only is it evergreen and have winter water, but they love to overhead sprinkle all of their shrubs in the summertime. So they spread this fungus all over. And every place you see Hebe in the San Francisco Zoo, you'll find this beautiful leaf spot. It's very interesting because notice how white the centers are. And this is characteristic of that particular fungus leaf spot on Hebe. Another septoria that you perhaps have seen, if you grow winter celery, you probably will see septoria leaf spot on it. Very, very common on it. Uh, likes the winter rains, and I've never seen uh, winter celery in, in our area that doesn't have some of this on it. It even can get down onto the stalks and make the stalks look pretty hideous. You might not even want to eat it. There, we don't have a good chemical control for it, so if... I would suggest that if you do grow celery in the wintertime, uh, that as soon as you see any spots, you remove those leaves, get rid of them. And if this doesn't control it, then I would try to grow the celery in a different section of your garden, as far away from that section as possible. The fungus can't live in the soil, but it can live in old, dead celery refuse in the soil and carry over from one year to the next. So sanitation, again, would be a good way to control this. Botrytis. Botrytis we're going to talk about a little bit more in a minute or so. Botrytis is a fungus which is very, very common, grows on lots of tissues, particularly dead herbaceous organic tissues. The fungus is incapable of gaining entrance into living tissues in most plants, but there is a form of botrytis that goes to lily and it causes a serious disease like this. So if you see this, you know you probably have botrytis. A very similar form also goes to tulip. And in that particular plant, they call the disease fire. We don't see it too often here, but in Northern California, they see a lot of it. Both of these diseases are common. But you can see them on plants that are being grown around this area. We have some diseases, disease-producing organisms, in which the flowers are infected. This happens to be a camellia, and the disease is called camellia petal blight. Fungus infects only camellia flowers, nothing else. Once the fungus invades the tissues, it starts moving through the tissues. If you see tissues browning in the center part of the plant, 
the chances are pretty good that that's the camellia petal blight fungus. Sometimes you'll see tissues browning around the margin, and that can be old age, it can be frost, can be excess water. A lot of things can cause that. But if you see them browning in the center and moving out, that's the camellia petal blight fungus. Fungus grows through the flower. It replaces the calyx, that green area around the base, with a hard fungus structure that falls to the ground, lives in the soil, doesn't live, it just exists, rests in the soil until the following spring. And the following spring or winter, the conditions that bring about the flowering of the camellia trigger that fungus to begin to develop, produces a little inverted mushroom that throws its spores into the air. Any that land on a flower in the presence of a drop of moisture germinate and start the whole cycle over again. A fantastic relationship between the fungus and the plant it attacks. And that's all that happens. And I'll show you those structures when we get to signs because those are actually parts of the fungus that we're uh, going to look at. Similar fungus goes to azaleas, rhododendrons. This one does cause a little more trouble because it produces a spore in the flowers which can be airborne or can be transmitted by bumblebees, which are pollinators of azaleas and rhododendrons. So this can have a secondary spread. Does the same thing, though, produces resting bodies that fall to the ground. The spring or the way late winter, they germinate and infect the, the tissues and start this whole cycle over again. It also goes to more plants. Doesn't only go to azaleas, goes to rhododendrons, goes to other members of that particular family. And so it can cause a problem. Here you can see it starting in that rhododendron blossom. If you have that, any of these diseases, camellia petal blight, azalea petal blight, rhododendron, be sure that you remove the flowers. Do not let them fall to the ground because if they do, they're going to produce the resting structures in the ground. Secondly, you have to do something other than just remove the flowers because those little fruiting bodies, those little resting bodies can remain in the soil for three to five years. So even if you start picking all the flowers, there's still going to be some in the soil that can cause the problem. If you don't want to use chemicals, you can put a four-inch layer of mulch, any mulch down, and that will prevent those little fruiting bodies from reaching the surface of the soil, and you can break the cycle that way. Now, these methods are effective only in as much as you get good ground cover. If you miss a spot where that fungus, one of those little fruiting bodies can produce a million spores and start, can start the whole cycle again. Even more important is the fact that if you do all of this and your neighbor doesn't, those spores can blow in from his or her yard. <laughs> so what this tells you is if everybody in your area is growing camellias and if you're all interested in doing it, you make it a community project and everybody do the same thing. That way you can break the cycle. We mentioned botrytis before. Uh, this particular botrytis is different from the one on the lily, but this one in, can only go in in injured or un, inactive tissues. Flower tissues are inactive, and flowers are very susceptible. Uh, botrytis is an airborne spore. It likes low temperature conditions. I don't know about down here. It's probably too warm, but in the Bay Area, every summer, we have two weeks in July where it's cool and moist, and the petunia flowers just melt. At that time, I swear off petunia flowers. I say I'm not going to grow anymore. But after it dries off and they start blooming again, I become a petunia fancer again because you get more mileage out of petunias than almost any other flower you can grow. And also, they come in such a fantastic color range. 
So I still grow petunias and I still have botrytis. Here it is on annual flocks. Notice that petunia flower down underneath. See how it's covered and you see all that brown fluff? That's the fungus and I'm sure you've seen it on any herbaceous uh, dead material on the ground in the summertime if it's moist it's just covered with spores these are airborne spores they blow around and if they land on flowers in the drop in presence of moisture they will cause the problem here's what they do to gerbera move down under the flower head and they just melt the stem now interesting thing about this fungus is that it cannot infect healthy tissues directly but if it has a food base on inactive tissues or dead tissues, it can move directly into healthy tissues. And that's what's happening here. Here it is on calcellaria, producing real neat little spots. The only good thing about this is that the nurseryman wouldn't use those plants, and so he gave me a whole carload of botrytis-infected calcellaria. And I had the most beautiful bit of calcellaria that winter that you ever saw. <laughs> hasn't happened again, so I haven't had such a beautiful bed again. Here it's gone into a chrysanthemum stem. It's moving both directions on the chrysanthemum stem. It's <clears throat> going to kill that stem, and, and that flower, of course, is going to be worthless. Here it is on Lysianthus. Flower is very, very susceptible. Some flowers are more susceptible than others. You all know Lysianthus, Eustoma. Beautiful plant, but susceptible to many diseases, and this is just one of them. And poinsettia bracts are very, very susceptible. If you buy a poinsettia and put it out on your porch, and if it gets rained on, it's going to look like this, and that's due to botrytis. If you want to prevent that, prevent the, water, the rain from falling on the poinsettia, and then put the plant back out again, and you won't have this problem. And there's the botrytis fungus. Absolutely, fantastically beautiful. The interesting thing this stem is flattened and each section is at right angles to the next section and this somehow or other creates a movement in the fungus due to a change in temperature or a change in air pressure or a change in air movement and it causes that stem each one of those stems to jerk like this and when it does it throws some of the spores off and then the air currents carry them around and in fact all these fungi are adapted I tell you we we think we know a lot but they are pretty smart here's a fruit spot that I'm sure you've all seen this is a Thompson seedless grape you've seen those little flecks this is due to powdery mildew uh, powdery mildew on the fruit grows along and the powdery mildew fungi are external they send little pegs down into the epidermal cells to get their nutrients and in the process of doing it, on the fruit of the grape, the grape doesn't like that. So the cell eventually dies, but it takes a while. So the fungus then uh, is moving on and it's penetrating some more. So they're killing these cells as the fungus grows through, but the fungus is still staying alive. And so those are just the results of infection by a powdery mildew fungus. It probably doesn't affect the, the quality of the fruit. Uh, you probably have eaten them just as I have. I can't tell any difference between the flavor of those and the ones that don't have those specks. And I think if we had a nutritionist study it, they might say that they're more nutritious because the fungus had to build up something there that it was using. This is a tomato fruit as late blight. Late blight is not a serious problem here. 
uh, except on occasion. Last spring, we saw more late blight in tomatoes. Killed tomatoes, just the plant, the whole plants died. Potatoes and tomatoes both were killed by this fungus. And it was due to the fact that the nurseries had some in their, their plants, and as they sold them, they were infected, and they got out. And then we had all that late rain, and that's what this fungus likes. Lots of rain and cool weather. And this fungus is one that's which responsible for a lot of things in history. You perhaps have heard about the, the terrible famine in in Ireland in the 1840s, this is the fungus that caused it. Caused all sorts of repercussions throughout the world. It's a potent fungus, just really potent. And when it gets into the fruits, it makes them look like this. A closely related fungus is found in lemon. This is called lemon brown rot. And I'm sure you've all seen this. If you store a lemon too long, every once in a while you'll see this. Uh, that rot is a firm leathery rot. It's not a soft rot. And that rot has sort of an interesting smell. It, it smells lemony, but it smells sort of dry and lemony. But it, it isn't a putrid smell. It's just a different smell. Uh, if you see that, just get rid of that plant, that, that particular lemon. Don't uh, keep it there. Get rid of the other lemons that are in there. At least dry them out so that uh, they, there can't be any moisture on them. And if you store your Hubbard squash or any of your squashes in a place which is a little bit too moist, a penicillium, which is a common fruit-rotting fungus, gets into all sorts of different fruits, citrus, apples, uh, any fruits, uh, may get into the fruits of, of the squash. And this had just one little spot on it at the other end of the fruit, and I put it in my laboratory just to see what hap would happen under those dry conditions. It didn't stop it a bit. The fungus moved clear through the whole fruit, and that's all that's left that was even partially good. Now we're going to kill bigger portions of plants, and we're going to start back over with bacteria. This is fire blight. Fire blight results from infection by bacterium that gets in through the flower blossoms principally, the only way it can get in virtually, and it once it gets in the flower blossoms, it moves both directions up and down the stem and kills the tissues very, very rapidly. Kills the tissues so rapidly that the abscission layer, the base of the leaf can't form, and the leaves hang in the plant, and it, make it makes the plant look like it's been scorched by fire. And that's where it gets its name, fire blight. So here we have pear tree. Pears are very susceptible. Only goes to members of the palm tribe or the rose family. If you see somebody telling you that their peach tree or their plum tree or their apricot tree has fire blight, tell them that that is not true. Only pears, pyracantha, apples once in a while. We don't see it here. Back east they have it. Um, Cotoneaster, loquat, uh, quince. Um, these plants will get it but the stone fruits don't. Here it is on pyracantha, very serious on pyracantha, killing back that branch. It's from my own yard. My son asked me what he could do to help one day, and I said, well, you can cut out the fire blight in the pyracantha. And he said, well, what do I do? And I said, well, you cut it out six to eight inches beyond where you can see any dead wood. So he said, okay. And I went home that night, and the plant was virtually gone. <laughs> and I said, what in the world did you do? And he says, I did exactly what you said. And I said, well, exactly what did I say? And he said, you said to cut it out six to eight feet beyond where I could see any dead wood. 
Well, there are two morals to this story, and inasmuch as you will be giving advice to people, when you give people advice, I would suggest that you ask them to repeat it to make sure that they get it correctly. The other moral is it's a good control for firebite. I haven't had any since. <laughs> I told you that the firebite bacteria gain entrance through the flowers, and here you can see them moving right down the flowers, moving both directions in the stem. The more succulent the tissues are, the farther and the faster it's going to move and the more it's going to kill. So if we have a real cool, wet spring, there's going to be a lot more fire blight than there is if we have a hot, dry spring. The bacteria can get in virtually only through the flowers. No other way, so don't worry about it. How do you control it? Well, you prune out those infected portions. And if you do a good job, you can get rid of it. But if you live next door to a pear orchard, you're going to have problems. Because the bacteria, once they get in the flower, are transmitted by honeybees and they're spread from flower to flower to flower to flower and so this causes problems. Another bacterial problem that we see on apples principally is a disease called blast. This bacterium doesn't go to all apples but some cultivars <clears throat> and this kills the bark. Eventually it'll girdle that branch and the branch will die and if you have this problem I would suggest that maybe you just graft that tree over to another variety that doesn't have it. It tends to be varietal. A similar bacterium is one that we call the bacterial canker organism. It goes mainly to members of the stone fruit group, particularly peaches. Dr. English at Davis worked for years and years and years on trying to control this. Some winters he would spray with something and he would get control. The next winter he would use the same material and he wouldn't get any control. They didn't know what was going on. Then a few years ago they decided that they would try to answer the peach replant problem. You know, if you go back into the same soil where any plant has been growing for a long time and try to grow that same plant, it's slow to take off. It's really a problem. They call this a replant problem. And in peaches, it's quite severe. So what they did was they took a, an old peach orchard, they fumigated half of it, the other half they didn't fumigate. Planted peaches in them, and the ones in the fumigated portion grew beautifully, no problems at all. The ones in the unfumigated portion grew very slowly, and pretty soon they began to have bacterial canker, which tells us that bacterial canker is not due to the result of infection from the top part of the plant only, but it's due to the condition of the plant. And if the plant is in good condition, it won't have bacterial canker. And so this is what you have to worry about. Well, I mentioned Modesto ash anthracnose. I just put it in again to remind me to tell you that on some occasions, so many of the branches, leaves can be killed that certain big branches will die. And we're killing bigger portions of the plants so that I want you to know that. The same thing is true with elm anthracnose. Elm anthracnose causes cankers like this, and for years they didn't know what that was. They couldn't isolate the fungus from it, but finally they found that at the very tips, the fungus was still active, it was causing, causing those problems. And so this is the elm anthracnose fungus, and it can do a lot of damage to plants. Now, the control for this is one which is very, very simple, very, very easy. All you do is cut all the way around and remove the bark in that area and the new cambium will begin to heal and pretty soon it'll heal over and there'll be no problem. Very simple approach to controlling the elm canker. Botrytis, we've talked about that one a couple times and we'll talk about it a little more. It can kill large portions of plants. This happens to be a small portion of a redwood 
seedling, but we've seen this fungus go in on little dead needles, get into the young seedling, spread out through the needles. Any plant that's touching it becomes infected, and we've seen it kill whole areas of redwood, young redwoods. And so this fungus can be a problem, and then very difficult because if the plants are growing close together, they don't dry out. It's easy to have a few dead needles in there, and it's easy to have botrytis wherever their plant material grown. Here's botrytis on tuberous begonia. Tuberous begonia has a structure that surrounds each node, each place where leaves come out. It's known as a ligule. In many plants, ligules have chlorophyll. In tuberous begonias, they're inactive tissue. And this is just exactly what botrytis loves. It gets in there, it grows on that ligule. Once it's established, I told you it can go into healthy tissue. It moves right into the central portion of the stem, causes a whole collapse, and the whole top of the plant goes out. And if you've ever grown tuberous begonias, you probably have this problem. Watch it very carefully. Keep as much of the green material, that's dead material that's fallen to the ground, off the ground so that it doesn't produce these spores and see what you can do. Don't grow your plants too close together. You need to get air in there so that the fungus doesn't have enough moisture to, to do it. Lots of cultural things. Closely related to botrytis, but a little bit different, is a fungus that's called the brown rot fungus. Now, this is not the same brown rot fungus that goes to lemon that we talked about a minute ago. This is the brown rot of stone fruits. Brown rot of stone fruits goes to many stone fruits, but mostly to apricots. And you'll see it in apricots. The fungus, again, a weak one, cannot gain entrance to the healthy tissues, gets in through the flowers, grows down into the flowers, grows through the stem, and kills portions of the plant. Again, dependent upon how young and succulent the tissues are. So in a cool, moist spring, you're going to see more killed than others. The only control that we have for this at the present time is to uh, prune those branches. This is a fungus that we see on a few plants, uh, most commonly on the giant sequoia. The fungus is called Botryosphyria. It's on your outline. And it, again, is a weak invader. It does not go into healthy tissues. But giant sequoias are not happy away from their home. And the warmer you grow the giant sequoia, the more problems you have it. At Davis, they can hardly grow giant sequoias in their arboretum because it's so warm up there and it's a stress on the plant and this fungus just goes in and kills them. It's really a serious problem. We have it in the Bay Area, but it's not too serious. Um, but in its native habitat, we never see this fungus. The interesting thing about this is as you go into the botanical garden at Berkeley, there are two giant sequoias. One of them has a lot of this, and one of them doesn't have very much. And this makes me suspicious that maybe some plants are more tolerant of the bad conditions. Now, it isn't. They're not resistant to the fungus. They're just more tolerant of the conditions that weaken the tree. The other, and I thought, well, that's pretty good, but I said maybe that's only an exception. But down at the Kaiser Center in Oakland, there's a row of about five of these trees, and four of them are just completely clobbered, and one of them is standing there just as beautiful as it can be. Well, why isn't somebody propagating from these trees? Because they are more tolerant of whatever it is that's weakening them that's allowing the Botryosphere to get in. This is a problem that I'm sure you're aware of. This is uh, Fusarium pitch canker. It's not on your outline. Be sure you add it right there. Fusarium pitch canker. That's spelled capital F-U-S-A-R-I-U-M. Fusarium pitch canker. 
a new disease, relatively new disease. People are studying it. It goes to the Monterey pine, and it goes to the Monterey pine wherever Monterey pines are being grown. And it's very serious down in the Monterey area. Um, it's spread by beetles, not by bark beetles, but by beetles that feed on the new growth. And they're just studying it, so we can't tell you all the answers at the present time. We don't have a good control, except they have found out in the Monterey area some trees that don't show any symptoms. So again, we're back to thinking that maybe there's resistance, and they better start propagating from those trees if they're going to. And you can propagate Monterey pines vegetatively. Verticillium wilt, a soil-borne fungus. I'm sure you've all heard of verticillium, or you will before too long. Verticillium is soil-borne fungus. has a very, very wide host range. Fungus produces little tiny resting structures in diseased tissue, and as that diseased tissue decomposes in the soil, these little structures are left in the soil. We are told by people who have studied it that these little resting structures can last 20 years in the absence of a susceptible plant and still cause infection when an susceptible plant is planted there. Even worse than that is the fact that tomatoes are very, very susceptible. And for years and years and years, we grew the old Pearson variety of tomato. It was extremely susceptible, but it was tolerant. And it would produce a crop anyway, so people grew it. And wherever there's a history of that old tomato in the soil, we can be sure that there's verticillium in that soil. In fact, we have a rule in our department that says that any soil that has a history of tomatoes, potatoes, or strawberries probably has the verticillium fungus in it. Verticillium <coughs> starts causing symptoms at the lower portion of the older leaves. The leaves turn yellow around the margins. This progresses inward, and those leaves turn tan, and this progresses up the plant. If you see this in tomatoes, you can be suspicious that you have verticillium because it's very, very common. Now, in tomatoes, we can grow resistant varieties, resistant cultivars. Anything that has VF, sometimes it'll have VFN, VFNF, V, or a whole bunch of different things, but the first V stands for resistance to verticillium. So if you have a problem with verticillium, be sure that in the signature of that variety, you have VFN. It also goes to many, many trees. Here it is in camphor. Rarely does it ever kill a whole tree. It just kills back branches. New branches come, and this is a continuing process. Camphor, very susceptible. Olive, very susceptible. Pistachia, susceptible. Edible as well as Pistachia chinensis, which is uh, a beautiful ornamental plant, but it's very susceptible to the fungus. But you get this dieback. Japanese maple, probably the most susceptible. If you have dieback in Japanese maple, you can almost be certain that you have verticillium wilt. And I'll show you a little bit later how to diagnose it because it's dependent upon a color change in the plant, and that's a different symptom. And there's not much you can do to control it. But it's not going to kill the tree. I've only seen it kill a couple Japanese maples, and this was uh, an unusual situation, but it, it can kill a tree, but it usually doesn't. In your outline, there's heart rot is listed. Uh, heart rot is sort of difficult to describe as a disease. Uh, the heart rot fungi, and there are many of them, invade old trees generally. They move down through the heartwood and they destroy the heartwood as they go. 
Uh, they don't damage the trees too much as long as they're in the upper portion, unless you have branches going out at right angles where there's a lot of stress on them, then they can weaken the plant. But if you have a tree that's upright, phys physicists tell us that a hollow cylinder is virtually as strong as a solid cylinder. And that's what you have with the heart rot fungi. But the heart rot fungi are there for a purpose. They're there to recycle these old trees. And what happens is they get in through the dead branches in the upper portion. They move down through the heartwood, not doing an awful lot of damage. But once they get into the root system, they rot the roots and over the tree goes. And this is nature's way of recycling them. If they get down into the root system, then the roots are going to rot and that's going to, the tree is going to topple. So if you suspect that plant is having heart rot and it's leaning up against your house or leaning towards your neighbor's house, you better check it. Now there are really only one good clear way of finding out and that's to use an increment bore. And an increment bore is just like a drill bit except it drills out a hollow core and you run it into the tree and you pull that out and you check it. And if that wood is all rotten and if you do that <coughs> six inches above the soil line, then you know that you better do something. And you have to do it in several places in the tree in order to make sure that the tree isn't gonna go over. And that's about all I can tell you about it. If you're suspicious, check it out. Root rots. <coughs> I told you we didn't have many diseases that affect the foliage, but we make up for it in the number of root rots. We have some beauties here, you know, just really potent. This particular uh, lily is infected with root rot. Not so bad because most lilies, when they grow, the roots come out of the basal plate, and those rot off very easily. What sustains the lily is the stem roots, and all lilies will produce stem roots. But if they become infected, like this one, then the plant is not going to do very well. Now, because there's a bulb there, it probably will sustain the plant and it won't die, but it'll look pretty sad. Dying of portions of plants, the prostrate junipers are very, very susceptible to a fungus that we call a water mold fungus. Water mold fungi are common in many, many soils and they cause lots of problems in many plants. Prostrate junipers are very susceptible. And so if you see branches dying back like that, you probably are very, can be very suspicious that you have water mold root rot. Now this is a cultural problem. Prostrate junipers as a group, particularly the tam junipers, do not want summer water. They do not need summer water from the last rainfall in the fall, in the, in the winter, to the first rainfall in the fall. Don't water them, because if you do, <coughs> you'll create a problem and what is the first thing we do when we see a plant not looking very good? Of course, we just create a nice situation for plant pathologists and nurserymen, you see. Root rots really infect the roots and knock the roots off. If we wash the soil away from there, look at what we have. Uh, that poor plant can hardly function because the new the nutrients are picked up by root hairs, which we can't even see here. But there are no root hairs because there are no roots. And so root rot can be pretty, pretty serious on these plants. And plants in containers, when anybody brings me a plant that's not doing very well, I knock it out and I look at the root ball. And if the root ball looks like the one in the center, I tell them they better change something quickly. Now we're going to kill whole trees, whole plants. This is a problem that we have with many of our native plants. 
And we know for a fact that if you water native plants in the summertime, they're not going to do very well. I chose this nice series on oak trees because it happened right on the campus. When they were building that building behind there, that new library, they left those two nice live oak trees to be used in the landscaping. When the landscaper came in, he put a nice mound of soil to channel the water down to the both trees, put another nice mound of soil on the other side to channel the water down to the trees, put a lawn in up against both of the trees, and then put a sprinkler in to be sure to finish the job. I told the head landscape architect about this, and he said, there's nothing we can do. We farmed it out to an outside company. So I went and I took a picture and I decided I'd take a picture every year just to show what happens. And this is 1971, 1972, both trees are there. I just stood in the wrong place, but that front tree is beginning to get weak. 1973, that front tree very, very weak. 1974, the front tree's dead and gone, the back tree beginning to get weak. 1975, the back tree a little weaker. 1976, even weaker yet, 1977. We had a drought in 1977, they couldn't water the lawn. <laughs> and so the tree recovered. I'm not gonna tell you that you can get every tree to recover that's having problems, but I'm telling you that there's the potential right there, and it shows. And if you take care of these plants the way they should be, you won't have problems. This is how that tree looked from the side. A little more heavy on this side than the other side, partly due to shading, partly due to the fact that the soil slopes very, very steeply on this side. If you look at that same tree from that same position, now look at that tree on that side is getting weaker. And the reason for it is the students are too lazy to walk on the sidewalks and they've created a path over the top of that root section and those roots aren't getting air or water and so that side of the tree is going down here. The preceding program was part one of two parts, each 90 minutes long. There is support material available at this website, including quizzes, handouts, and lecture outlines for all presentations. Consult the UCTV programming guide for the date and time part two, and other lectures in the series will be shown. It's the Definitive Guide to Gardening, produced by the University of California. The California Master Gardener Handbook contains over 700 pages of in-depth information on topics such as soil, fertilizer and water management, plant propagation, weeds and pests, lawn care, landscape design, home vegetable gardening, and the wide variety of garden crops that are grown in the Golden State. The chapters in this handbook provide helpful information on selecting varieties, planting, growth cycles, pruning, irrigation, and harvesting. The California Master Gardener Handbook is available along with other gardening publications on the A&R Catalog website at anrcatalog.ucdavis.edu. Dedicated to serving people, the Division of Agriculture and Natural Resources strives to make life better for Californians in every corner of this fast-growing, ethnically diverse state. No other arm of the University of California reaches out so far to improve the lives of Californians. 
The division brings together nearly 1,100 research scientists and educators on three UC campuses, nine field stations, and 64 Cooperative Extension County offices statewide to develop and deliver practical solutions for local problems. Their efforts range from technical farm assistance and water conservation research to nutrition education for low-income families and pioneering advances in veterinary medicine. The University of California's Division of Agriculture and Natural Resources has a library of easy-to-use, practical, research-based videotapes and publications from UC's farm advisors, specialists, and faculty. Valuable information is available for farmers, ranchers, growers, landscapers, educators, homeowners, families, and individuals interested in agriculture and natural resources. Call 1-800-994-8849 to request a free copy of our catalog or point your browser to anrcatalog.ucdavis.edu for our complete online catalog. There are also dozens of publications available free of charge over the World Wide Web 24 hours a day. At the ANR site, select Free Publications, and you'll see a list of short publications you can download which cover a variety of topics. The information in most titles also applies outside California, and many apply worldwide. You can also find out more about UC's Division of Agriculture and Natural Resources and the wide variety of work it does at danr.ucop.edu.